Welcome to Peace Lab Podcast. Each week, we will explore how we can create more well-being and positive changes through ancient wisdom and contemporary science. We will also share the unique stories of individuals who are already doing so to create more peace and joy for themselves and also for others. I am your host, Elva Zhang. So now let's begin. Welcome to another episode of Peace Lab 2020 podcast. Today I speak to a dear friend, Pat Armistead, often referred to as Australia's answer to Patch Adams, the clown doctor. Pat embraces good humor, unwavering positivity and creativity in one. She has this beautiful capacity to merge her creativity and compassion to champion the human spirit, leading others to find joy, but also leading organizations to help their staff finding joy and purpose in their work. In today's conversation, we talk about Pat's journey as the world's first joyologist, her take on love, and also her experience of 2020 in the midst of COVID. Enjoy. And today I have a very special guest, and I have the world's first joyologist, Pat Armistead. Hi, Pat, how are you? I'm really good, thank you so much. Great to be communing with you. Oh, <laughs> uh, did I pronounce the joyologist correct? Yes, yep, joyologist, yep. Joyologist, and I think, you know, I'm sure a lot of the listeners who are listening right now are thinking, what is a joyologist, which we will touch upon later, I'm sure. And so thank you so much for coming on the um, PSAP 2020 podcast and to share your journey. And also I need to mention that this is going to, um, this is a February 2021. And the February, as you know, is traditionally, especially in the Western um, countries, the month of the love. So I handpicked a few of the friends and the people I admire like yourself who I consider um, representing that higher path of love. So thank you again for coming on the show and to share your journey and your path. Mm, pleasure. Look forward to it. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> so before we start, it's a little um, ritual or tradition for the episode we run at Peace Lab Podcast. We normally do a very simple grounding meditation just to gather our energy, you know, but also set up a intention for the conversation we carry. Would you like to join me for that? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, very easy. So I know you meditate, so you know the drill anyway. Um, simply just close your eyes and we start gather our attention, our awareness away from the daily life. We might have been had a very busy day, but now give us ourselves the permission with our eyes closed to send a powerful signal to our brain. It's time for us to turn within, to be in the for and by ourselves even just for a very short while. 
and checking in with ourselves noticing how our body is feeling maybe you are listening to this episode in the morning just wake up or maybe you're on your way to work or maybe you're like me talking after a day of work just notice scan through our body from the head our face neck and shoulders hands torso hips thighs knees legs feet do you notice any tension spots soreness or even pain somewhere in our body if yes see if we can merely nod and acknowledge their existence without any judgment and together we take a deep breath in and out breathing and out and for this third breath see if we can send fresh air to that part of the body and out and as we exhale feel our body is feeling deeper and heavier heavy not in the sense of burden a heavy in the sense of feeling grounded and then just at your own pace breathe and engage our abdomen to feel the body is rising and falling rising and falling simple yet profound Just for now we have nowhere to go no place to be but just in the here and now Without further ado I think the best person to introduce yourself and your journey just how you become pat you are today and you know how you become joyologist today share with us okay thank you <clears throat> when uh, when i left school i wanted to be an artist but my mother said to me well that's lovely dear but i really think you should get a proper job and so it was that i ended up going nursing i had no no intention of ever being a nurse however i loved it and uh, i nursed for 16 years when i left nursing um as a result of being quite burnt out and by default ended up with my own uh video production studio and produced television commercials um and freelanced as a journalist and camera person for the news 60 minutes and 2020 so very different but that um that foray into advertising really 
was like the arts degree that I never did. So there was just full creative expression in that business. And I've had that business for 11 years. And then at the turn of the century, I had um, a whole series of losses. I lost my home and business twice in four years, relocated to another country owing $80,000, which I repaid in two years, actually. Um, I'm a cancer survivor. I lost my first child. My family haven't spoken since 1989. Uh, when I moved to that other country, I actually, in the first 18 months that I was there, it was New Zealand, um, I had 10 car accidents. And oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> Around about every, every six weeks, yes. Uh, none my fault, honestly. I, I'm speechless. I, I, I don't recall that part. Um, <laughs> I just want to rewire a little bit, if, if I may. When you mentioned about you were a nurse for 16 years and then you transitioned to a very different career, that sounds a huge different jump. How did you even transition? Was it a hard process or it just happened to you? Um, well, I had, when I left nursing, yeah. I went on a working holiday around Australia with um, uh, my new partner, uh, my second partner, and um, enjoyed many and very things. I did that for five years. And when I returned, I knew I experienced a level of freedom mm. and I learned to free fall when we had that experience. And by free fall, I mean, um, we never did without anything work was always there we either of us always had work and we had a better lifestyle and uh, the most magnificent range of experiences and so I was changed a lot in terms of you know when I left on that journey and when I returned <clears throat> I had filmed much of that journey and of course no one wants to sit and listen to or watch 30 hours of home movies and thought about editing it and editing way back then was very expensive and i thought oh well look there's probably other people like me who um have home movies that they'd like to have edited and make interesting um and so that's where it's where it began and uh from home movies i started doing events then i filmed weddings for about 12 months and really had um, developed a lot of skills over that time. And then there was an opportunity to um, secure a contract with Prime Television uh, as a news journalist and camera person. And so I applied for and got that. And then 12 months later after that, um, I became freelance for all the networks wow. and, and we produced television commercials. So. It was a journey, you know, I went nursing because mum said, yeah. <laughs> and when this opportunity came, it, you know, it, in the beginning, it just looked like something that might be a bit of a part-time thing, a transition thing. But after we'd been doing that for about 12 months, I wrote a five-year plan and we became full broadcast standard in two and a half years. So I achieved that in, um, 
you know, a very narrow window of time. And um, uh, I'm trying to think of um, what's the name of the book, The Seven Habits. Um, one of his habit, what's his name? Who wrote that book? I haven't, I haven't. Uh, doesn't yeah. matter. Uh, one of the seven habits is begin with the end in mind. So I entered the New South Wales Tourism Award while I had that business and made a 12 month plan. And the first thing that I did was write the speech I would give on the night of the awards, which was 12 months down the track. And then I did a backward plan for that 12 months to um, keep myself in check for how does what I'm doing now link to tourism? I like, I really like the idea. I need to experiment that, especially now at the start of a new year, the, when you said, you know, you almost envision how you would like to see yourself and then you work reversal engineering. Yes. And, and I have to ask this, did you actually use your speech? I did. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I did. I won the certificates hanging on the wall there. So that was an extraordinary time. And, you know, I just very slowly developed a whole range of very creative skills. <clears throat> yes, and something that's always been present for me is in this society, we honour sport and academia, but we don't honour creative intelligence, spiritual intelligence, practical intelligence, emotional intelligence, uh, interpersonal intelligence, intrapersonal intelligence in anywhere near the same way. And I'm really getting, you know, as we head into 2021, um, it is those skills and intelligences that we need to draw on more, especially those in leadership roles, in order to um, develop empathy, but also to serve people at the moment who are moving through hard, very hard times. People mm. um, are experiencing a lot of mental turmoil, a lot of uncertainty, um, fear and worry. Mm. <laughs> and the if we've got access to, um, I call it the, the wonder of our full self-expression, even when the world seems to be in turmoil in front of us, we can find a way to feel fulfilled no matter what. That's beautiful. I want to come back to your life story before, but later I definitely want to touch upon what you mentioned about the multifaceted nature of intelligence and also um, that the importance relating to leadership, especially in 2021. Yes. for the greater humanity but i want to come back to your story yep. so then you experience a series of trauma including 10 car accidents within <laughs> 18 months i don't know how how it could even possible to one person nine nine of those accidents somebody ran up the back of me at a stop sign not the same stop sign <laughs> and one of the others was um uh i was collected in a roundabout Wow. Uh, let, let me just share the A1 auto wreckers in Auckland, because it was over there, um, became uh, very good friends. When, when I would have the next accident, 
they would send the tow truck to pick up the car and the owner personally would come and collect me and take me wherever I needed to go. Um, so I really get, we had, you know, I had some crash karma happening then. <laughs> and, you know, what was the message behind that? I'm not sure, but sometimes life is sending you messages and it'll keep giving you a bump until we get it. So what so, was the message for you? Well, I don't know really how it links, but at the end of um, that uh, two-year period where I was repaying um, that debt, my partner of 20 years left with another woman and um, I, I was heartbroken. Um, I disintegrated. But I made some choices, and this is something I really do want people to kind of hear. It was the choices I made at that time, even though I was <laughs> um, in a very disintegrated, messy space, that put me on a path to reintegrate. So it's uh, like rebirthing after the destruction. Kind of, yes. Kind of. You know, the. Um, I was not in a good space and my doctor wanted to medicate me and mm. I kept saying to her, no, help me deal with my grief. You know, mm. I have every reason to be sad, <laughs> all of these things that had happened. Um, and so I found another doctor and then it was, um, I went to a grieving seminar and after the grieving seminar, I went home and checked my email and there was a message from a magician in South Australia inviting me to bring laughter yoga to New Zealand. And so I rang him, we had a conversation and it was in the middle of that conversation, I'm killing myself laughing. He hasn't told me any jokes. He's just telling me about laughter yoga. And there was a little pause. And in that pause, I just got an insight and the insight was, Oh my God, we've got radiology, pathology, hematology, but no joyology. I'm going to be a joyologist. Wow. <laughs> and so that's when it was born. Uh, I had no idea how that was going to roll out. Um, I came across to South Australia and did the training with Peter Saluno, the magician. <clears throat> and returned to New Zealand and I thought, well, no idea what I'm going to do with this. Um, and so I approached a friend who owned a rest home and I said to her, I would like to do a 90 day project. <clears throat> and long story short, so we began. Um, I taught these uh, 29 res residents. We did a laughter workshop every day for 90 days and I accredited them as New Zealand's first accredited laughter facility. <laughs> they went on to achieve a world record in the Guinness Book of Records for laughing continuously for one hour. They actually did in rounders. I didn't want anyone to expire from the effort. <laughs> and um, it was in that 90 days that I really started to see, right, I'm getting some sense of where I'm going with joyology, how I can draw on all that wealth of knowledge from my nursing. And at that point, didn't really know about how I'm going to meld my creativity 
um, but that came. So when I finished that first pilot, I did another and I assessed the residents and the staff using Howard Gardner's um, model of multiple intelligence mm. and created an activities program based on all the intelligences and um, rolled that out for a 12 month period. <clears throat> and it was during that time that I really was able to get deep into, right, I really see where I'm going here. Um, working in aged care was not going to be my total future, but it certainly gave me the opportunity to work very closely with a very small group of people like the nursing staff and the residents and form, um, form some ideas around what it might mean to be fully self-expressed. And uh, I wish I'd done more documenting over that time, but um, those 29 residents started doing things they never dreamed that they could uh, over that time frame. Following that, um, probably about 18 months later, um, I met a lady who had toured with Patch Adams and the, the, the clown doctor. Yes. Yeah, wow. And she had shown me the photographs of her tour, which was enough for me. It was like, I have to go. So I found Patch's number, rang him, and he said to me, don't come because of me, Pat. Come because you want to find and spend your clown self. Come because you'd like to experience the disparity between rich and poor. Come because you'd like to make friends with at least one Russian person. So I joined his tour through Russia, Moscow and St. Petersburg, um, visiting orphanages two or three a day and bringing some joy over a 16 day period. And that's probably been the most profound experience of my life. We were present to it all. And it's been probably the most sad, glad experience that I've ever had for the depth of presence that came with every encounter. There were no rules on the tour. Um, the only rule that there was that we was we weren't allowed to whine, as in whinge, <laughs> and um, and away we went. And mm. in Moscow, we stayed in uh, like a miners five star hotel, um, very impoverished conditions. And then in St. Petersburg, we stayed in the most extraordinary hotel. Every breakfast, a woman in a ball gown on the dais would play the harp while we had breakfast. Um, and he did all of that on purpose to show us the disparity because even still over there, um, there are still in the main two classes. Mm. And, you know, there's the very rich and the very poor, although small business is starting. So I returned from that trip feeling more vital and alive than I've ever felt in my whole life. And that experience with Patch, many conversations that I had with him, um, just cemented everything that I'd been doing. And when I returned, um, I had a part-time job and I saw that contract out 
and I thought I just need to jump and so leap of faith <laughs> and off I went and ever since then um, I've presented over a thousand keynotes I've been I had about a 12-year contract with Auckland University presenting a stress humor and health program I developed my own radio program which I had for five years and won five awards um, I began the Humour in Business Awards in New Zealand, uh, which ran for three years. Um, what else? I was privileged when I left New Zealand and returned back here about four years ago to be honoured by the Mayor of Auckland at a um, civic reception for my radio's contribution to New Zealand's wellbeing. So um, there in a capsule is that wow. joy journey. And, and what I say to people is, yeah. I didn't learn about joy by studying joy. You know, I came to learn about joy through my experience of grief, mm. shame, and embarrassment. Mm. And in the here and now, I'm really connected to um, that level of emotional expression and often how emotionally illiterate people are. Very, very true. And yeah. I like I like the way you put it just now because I was thinking as I was hearing the story, I was like, wow, like before you said it, the way you put it is so simple but profound. You said, I didn't come to learn joy by studying joy because joy is an emotion and um, it's, it's such a positive emotion and people always say i want to be happy i want to be joyful right and sometimes we try very hard to be happy but then you said you learn them you learned it through grief shame all the negative dirty and you know people hate those emotions but somehow we don't learn we don't gain that joyful experience just by avoiding them but is actually standing in front of a negative emotion and facing them then you learn from that is that correct that's been my experience yeah. like all my years nursing um you know uh, you don't have a lot of time in the get to know process you mm. walk to the bedside and you need to do something and often it's very uncomfortable or difficult or embarrassing so i learned very quickly to create a high trust environment mm. and that's been a sustaining factor right through all of my life um, when we look at uh, the paradox of pleasure and pain perhaps the very best example is childbirth that curious mix of pleasure and pain when a child is born mm. and the something that I share a lot with clients and when I'm presenting um there is something absolutely incredible about communing really deeply in awkward uncomfortable moments i have a story of a child who had leukemia and was in stage of life they could do no more for her and her parents were sitting either side of the bed she was about 10 and she took their hands and placed them over her heart and then she put her hands over their hands and she said to them I want you both to promise me that you will love each other the way that you have loved me 
Oh, that's beautiful. It made me teary. Yes, you know, um, to be able to sit in all of those moments while it's sad that she was passing, mm. what, a mem- what a gift mm. she gave her parents to really call them to be, to be love. You know, in that moment, they, they were the total embodiment of love. They were physically connected and touching. And at 10, <laughs> she had the wisdom come through to be able to talk into their most painful moment and say something beautiful. I remembered you told me your top priority, three top priority in your life is love, freedom, and spiritual intimacy. Yes. And since we are in February, and um, and I found this concept notion of love in today's modern contemporary society, it can be quite misconstrued. Just like emotions, you know, we we be awkward with experiencing, expressing, you know, um, our emotions, and love. So, how do you see love? Do you know, we came in as expressions of love. Mm. You know. Um, it's um, you know we look at a newborn child and you know 99% of people are going to be touched by just just seeing that newborn so we have this innate capacity to love and we all desire to be loved and for there are so many variations of how comfortable people are in expression of that uh, and therein lies some of our awkwardness with it. On the tour with Patch Adams, uh, there were 36 of us in clown persona. And as we walked through Moscow and St. Petersburg on the streets before we would go into these orphanages, um, at Patch's Kamar, when Patch met us in the foyer, let me tell you this bit first. As we stepped out of the lift first morning to meet Patch, He's very tall, six foot eight, really long arms. And he put both his arms out wide and he said, I love you and gave us all a hug. So, so that was our greeting. And then as the whole 16 days opened, everywhere we went, when we were in the street, we would form a single file and to the passing parade of people or traffic, (laughs) we would all in unison be saying, I love you. And I've been sharing that story when I give presentations and um, ask people to do that with me. And 90% of the time people do, but there are some people who are really uncomfortable and I, I get it, I understand. One woman stood up after such an episode a lunchtime presentation and she said pat can i say something and i said of course she said pat i can't be telling people that i don't know that i love them and i said i I get that and you know i made no comment or judgment around it however (laughs) um love is not a word we've ever brought into the business arena but how many times have we said, 
I just love what you've got on today. Oh, is that your art on the wall? I love it. All right. There are, there are so many ways we can express without intruding on someone's personal space to, to give that um, affirmation of the good that we see. Mm. I have always had the capacity to see the good that's been there for as long as I can remember. I think love as a term, it encompasses like emotion such as caring, such as compassion, such as empathy. Am I right? Just And also that ability you said before, that capability of seeing good, seeing the goodness in people, in the situation. That's also a demonstration of love, which is a yes. very broad concept rather than just, you know, the romantic love we tend to... Yes. In the movie and everything. Um, is that right, Pat? Yes, yes. Yeah. So and that's your priority in life. You're not When you say love is your priority, it means at that level, the higher conscious level, rather than just the humanly, oh, I like the person, more the romantic sense. Because it transcends. I guess also when you use an example about, um, we say I love you even though to people we don't know, like a patch, how he did it. I guess it's seeing everyone as interconnected. It transcends, you know, just um, the boundary of our direct personal connection because I see you and we are connected. Yes. Hence, I love you. Am I right? That's my take. And, on you know, yeah, that's gorgeous. It, it's about it's about seeing in others our own humanity mm. and frailty because mm. we all have varying levels of that. Um and you know the I started nursing when I was 17 and the very first man I ever bed bathed was a man by the name of Bob Hall a construction crane had fallen on him and he was literally flattened oh no so he arrives in casualty 35 broken bones and they're just shaking their head saying he's not gonna make it anyhow he was still alive four hours later they took him to theatre, very afraid he'd die on the table, but he didn't. And they're trolleying him back to recovery and the conversation shifted and they were saying, oh, poor beggar, he'll probably be a vegetable. Well, Bob woke up in recovery and revealed indeed he was not gonna be a vegetable. And the conversation changed again. And they said, well, he'll never walk again. Bob Hall was in hospital the whole three years of my general nurse training. And here's something I want to impress on the listeners. I saw Bob Hall every single day I was on duty over that three year period, whether I was rostered on his floor or not. He went home for the odd weekend, um, but he had, was in many, many surgeries. Bob walked on two sticks to my graduation ceremony and stood up the back of the room. And when the ceremony proper was over, he put his hand up and said, I'd actually like to say something. And he came forward and he had this big scroll and about three foot long it was. <laughs> and he opened it out and he started reading off all the dreadful tricks and pranks and terrible funny things that I did to him over that time frame. Awesome. Every net. <laughs> 
every now and again, my mother, who was sitting in the front row, would go, oh, Patricia, you didn't. <laughs> when he was finished, he turned to me and looked at me and he said, Pat, you don't know what you did. Now, I, back then, I was not as um, present or conscious as I am now. Mm. But even in my unconscious state, I showed up for him. Somewhere within my being was this ability, this commitment. I learned commitment in those three years with Bob Hall. That's so beautiful. It's wow. And you know, the um, what was it about? It, it's about service. You know, wh why have I been doing all these years what I've been doing? I don't like to see people hurting, mm. you know, and even before COVID, the world was hurting. And there's going to be more pain now. Um, and, you know, we're going to be, we've got, you know, economic things that are going to need sorting, uh, people's mental health, um, there's a whole raft of things and we've still got this uncertainty um, and we need to be present for each other. Twenty twenty is actually the code for perfect vision. Oh yes, that's how how synchronistically right, right? So I love vision. I love metaphor. Mm. So I've created a meme and it says, you know, twenty twenty code for perfect vision. But it's also the year we opened our eyes. I like that. So you know, to um, and it didn't just open my eyes and your eyes. It was like everyone's eyes around the world. So probably for the first time, there's been that collective thing. All right, now I've got your attention. <laughs> um, and, you know, and we've come through. Uh, for myself as a speaker, all of my work disappeared. So I needed to rethink. Um, there are no conferences anymore. That was like a major part of my work. Um, universities weren't delivering as many programs so that opportunity wasn't there so I had to come back to online things and some coaching and I'm still in a transitional place around that but what I have mostly um, come to see is I'm single and I've been perfectly fine with being single for quite some time however this time the loneliness got to me okay let's explore a bit further yeah, yeah. when you say it got to you is that because you were physically in isolation yes and yes and the and the whole you know like in those first couple of months there was a lot of a lot of fear and uncertainty yes um which causes if if we've got someone to share it with you know you can go oh, what do you think? <laughs> and they say, oh, whatever. Um, then you've got that connection. If you don't have that, it's very, very easy to spiral down. I, I have to say that's very true because um, I 
in the first few months of the COVID, I came back from China. I was obsessed with all the news, and I noticed myself when I'm by myself, it was so easy for me to spiral downwards, and I get obsessed and terrified, and it's borderline anxious. And then you know, because I I have partner, and he was able to kind of calm me, and he's a lot more、um, joyful in a way, more. Less care, much more carefree, I guess. So he, once you bounce off, I think, oh, maybe it's not that bad. It does take off and share the load a little bit, isn't it?、Yeah. I didn't realize until you mentioned it. Yeah. So you know, I had to, you know, I took responsibility for that, and I made sure I rang at least two people a day、wow. to to get that connection.、Um, But one of the big distinctions that came over the year was I used to love the thrill of a keynote. There's like a lot of preparation, many hours, thrill of the stage. You get there and you've just got to go, and you've got to hold the space. And twelve、um, months on, even if those opportunities came back, they don't excite me. It, well, I don't think they'll excite me in the same way now. Why? Because I had the opportunity to work with a very big business for 15 months,、uh, 450 of their business leaders,、um, doing a mental health in the workplace program. So 20 people at the time, all the time, and I just was able to see over that 15-month period, they were mostly men, 90, 95%. Male business,、um, and the intimacy that was created each and every day just blew me away. And I saw a preparedness and a a shift in、um, male behaviour in a business setting that I would have really struggled to create 15 years ago.、Uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't have been up for the conversation. They'd have been. <laughs> Arms folded and you know leaned back in the chair, but they were ready. And、um, you know, I've got. I actually wrote a case study after this work because I thought it was so profound. And listeners are very welcome to access a copy of that、uh, if anyone was interested to see. To、um, so, I'm more interested now in working in this space. To work closely with men or women,、um, and give them the tools, and to see where they're triggered, and help them move through that, so that they're no longer had by circumstance.、Mm. Because if、um, we're not triggered by something, we're free.、Mm. And when you said about men, again, it comes back to the theme of. February, you know, love or connection. But when you mention men, I think it just kind of in my head. I thought about the word vulnerability. Yes. Like you were saying many years ago,、um, arms fold because we are、um, traditionally we grew up in environment whereby boys don't cry. You know, you come back to the very the starting point. We talked about your experience. Emotionally, we were told not to really. 
overshare, especially for guys, for men, boys, men. You know. However, in the past decade, I would say in particular, it's more encouraged, and also the idea of the gender male and the female are quite distinct from. Well, I would use the word the feminine and masculine energy. Actually, each human being, we are sentient being, we all carry the male and. Uh, sorry, masculine and a feminine energy within us.、Yep. It doesn't matter your gender, you know. It doesn't matter you're a man or a woman. Yeah. So it, that's also very important because I really think to be、uh, embody that emotion vulnerability that would be really helpful to create very healthy relationships, especially in the interpersonal relationships. Yes. One man at the end of the day, <clears throat> I would invite them to share. You know what was the one major thing they were taking away, and this particular chap stood up, and he said, "Pat, I need you to know." He said, "I'm actually," and he had tears in his eyes. He said, "I'm actually going home today to be present to my wife, because I never realised until today, my wife suffers with anxiety, and I didn't know. I didn't know." And here were these tears brimming.、Wow. His peers in the room stood up and gave him a standing ovation. It was just—I'm getting goosebumps telling you、yeah. now. It was just the most profound moment, and I thought, "This is it." You know,、um, those 450 men, mostly men,、um, left changed because of the level of intimate. The level of trust I could create in the room, so that we could go to and have all these difficult conversations around, what do you say if somebody tells you, you know, they're thinking about suicide?、Um, so you know, to be able to have brave conversations,、mm. you know, in the past we haven't been good,、mm. and the. The, as a society, too, and this is kind of more community focused, but I mean it shows up everywhere. We've become, especially us white folks, you can't see me doing the inverted commas around that, <laughs>、um, have become grief illiterate and death phobic. So, in the we've never talked about grief at work. If I've wanted, with you know speaking bureaus etc. To bring that up as a topic that I might deliver on, they're like, "Oh no, no, can't talk about, can't do that." Even the Christchurch earthquakes, I gave a, a number of keynotes down there after the quakes about eight, ten months later. I called the presentation "Excavating Joy," and one group said, "Please don't talk about grief. There's too many people hurting." Please don't talk about it. So you know, there's this reluctance and unwillingness. However, now we have to see what this shared vulnerability will bring forth, not just for one person, but for many. The, the, you know, that man would have gone home to his wife, and she would have said. What happened to you? <laughs> You're not the man who left here this morning. And when he went to work the next day, he would have been different there as well. Yeah. So one thing can change, and you know it doesn't change when we just say, "Will you pass the salt, please?" All right. It happens with deeper.
um, significant conversations um, where, you know, we're getting into that sometimes a raw place. Mm. However, we have to learn some skills then to be able to hold people gently. Yes. How do you hold the energy in a room so that people know you're not going to let them fall or hurt or be embarrassed? Um, we, we need to develop those skills and that's not something a business leader would have ever considered. I had, uh, I wrote a final little message, just one sentence and um, and this is for leaders in any, in any capacity, you know, we lead as mothers and fathers and parents. Um, so whatever your capacity, um, your capacity to have empathy and meet the psychological and emotional needs of those around you is actually pivotal. Mm. I like when you say you're leading, not just a leader, but you lead as a mother and as a father. Yeah. That's very powerful. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Pat. Yeah. Thank you. It's been awesome. Thank you again for tuning in and spending time with me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to tune in again next week. And if you do have any questions and comments, please feel free to leave a message. Take care and I'll catch you at the next Peace Lab podcast.